Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Casino gambling in the big city is still a novel idea in America. Out of the Vegas desert and off the barrier island of Atlantic City. But Vegas in town is getting a showy test at Encore Boston Harbor this summer. Not just a casino, but a world above, it advertises. 600 five-star hotel rooms, over thousands of card games and slot machines. Encore is service jobs of all kinds at premium wages. At $2.4 billion, it's the biggest single private development in 400 years of Massachusetts. With $77 million tossed in to clean up a stinking old Monsanto chemical dump on the Mystic River. This hour, we are sharing the welcome we got at Encore Boston Harbor, and then we're puzzling with the novelist Joshua Cohen in Atlantic City about where all this leads. Our conversations began on Encore's limousine bus that delivers you back and forth from public transit on Boston's Orange Line. On the bus, you learn that family members have agreed to disagree about Encore. I voted for it because of the urban aspect of it, the cleanup. And you? Yeah, I voted against it because people that get addicted to gambling. And I just think in this area, Everett, Chelsea, these people don't have that kind of money. And it's like their only hope to kind of get out is like, you know, maybe I'll win money at the casino. You know what I mean? In the flowery splendor of Encore's Harbor Walk, next to the Mystic River, visitors were happy to share their scorecards. How's your day here? All right. Yeah, it was an adventure. You know, day off from work and come out and play for a while. <laughs> Winning, losing? Well, losing a little bit, yeah. It's something I normally don't do a lot of because, you know, you don't have the money. The rents in Boston are horrible. They take all your money. No car, no cable TV. Everything goes to the rent. And once in a while, you can come out and play. We went to the buffet. It was fabulous. And we played some slot machines. And you played some roulette. And... We've been walking around, enjoying the art. The art is amazing. What was the the Popeye? It's $28 million. Is that amazing or not? I thought it was nice. thought it was a little pricey, but I thought it was nice. Gambled a little bit. We played some video poker. I thought it was nice. It's a little spendy. You know, the rooms are 700 bucks a night. It's like high-end Vegas, so... It's beautiful, the whole place. It's just—it's quite ritzy. Yeah, <laughs> it's really spectacular, the whole place. I just—I enjoy gambling. Describe the fun of it. Just fun, excitement. <laughs> he likes to lose money. <laughs> well, I, like, I like donate my money. Does your heart beat faster? At if, the I, game? if I win, it beats faster. If I lose, it doesn't beat at all. I love the slots. That's about it. I heard that the tables are like $25 minimum buy-in. I can't afford that. So blackjack tables, 25 I think, seem to be the minimum. Around this area here, $25. It's too expensive for people around here. Everett, Method. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the, I think that's the biggest problem. How much could you imagine losing and going back still? 400 I could. It's not my bills are paid for the month. That's what I care about. Yeah. FYI, the mortgage is due. 
<laughs> Our tour of Encore was by appointment with the Executive Vice President of Operations, Brian Goldbrands. It's really been great to see it come from what it was, the old Monsanto chemical plant, to what it is today, which is absolutely spectacular. Uh, is it what you dreamed of? You know what? I, I've seen all of our properties throughout the world. Uh, I worked for the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company for 20 years, so I've, I've traveled the world and see the most beautiful resorts. I have to see this is beyond our expectations. Wow. Some people have said it feels like I'm in Las Vegas. Some people <laughs> have said it doesn't even feel like we're on this planet. Um, you walk in and you've got a carousel created of 83,000 flowers. It's a floral carousel designed by Preston Bailey out of New York that is just so whimsical, mythical. It has uh, a pegasus. It has a unicorn. It has 10 different horses ordained in different roses and peonies and hydrangea. And then all of the floral around it and these four large trees, we're standing in an atrium with a glass ceiling that sits 40 feet high in the sky, it, 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 it just takes your breath away. But everything's locally sourced, uh, except for the Wagyu beef we have in, in Rare coming from Japan. Everything's from New England. We want it to feel like New England. We don't want this to be a Vegas hotel. We want this to be Boston's hotel. And we want everybody to come here and enjoy the resort. You know, People refer to it as a casino. I think that's unfair. We're more than a casino. We're a fully integrated resort. Let's go up and check out one of the rooms and we'll come down through the spa and we'll just drop down and see everything. So we have 671 luxurious rooms and suites and villas. We're gonna show you one of our premium king rooms. This is the smallest accommodations that we have. These rooms are 650 square feet. So they're very spacious. All of them come with digital iPads. Alexa, turn on the lights. Okay. And you look out here, we have more wildlife than this shoreline's ever seen. Look at this, all the ladies and gentlemen and all our guests walking and strolling along the harbor walk. But the color, the floral, uh, 900 mature trees, 100,000 different shrubs, uh, 53,000 different floral and, and flowers mm. that have been planted. So these rooms have just about everything you could wish for, the in-room bar, the bed linens are 507 thread count, the finest you'll find ever anywhere in the world. We want everybody to have that luxurious sleep experience. Sleep like a baby, wake up fresh, ready to go, and whether you're going to work or you're just going down to enjoy the spa or have some fun in the casino, we want you to sleep well. You're in a luxury hotel and we want to make sure that you have everything you can think of. 24-hour in-room dining, anything you want, whenever you want. This is the spa at Encore. As you get off the elevator in the reception area here that we're standing in, you just immediately start to feel different. Hmm. Uh, the energy is a lot lower. It's a lot softer. You almost want to start whispering. This is about relaxation. We have enough high energy downstairs with the casino, the nightclubs, and all of that. But I think sometimes people want a little bit of a respite, a little bit of uh, an escapism. Mm -hmm. And this is that place for everybody that lives in Boston, as well as those that are coming from out of town. So this is the first place you would come. We have steam, sauna, full facilities, hot plunge, cold plunge, heated stone chairs, a deluge shower. You really could spend the day in here. Many spas just have a hallway that goes to the treatment 
rooms? We created an experience on the way to the treatment rooms. We're in some sort of dreamland. I, I, I'm not going home, Brian, but... We have hotel rooms, food and beverage. We'll even tuck you in at night. architecture and designs are done in-house. Hmm. So we have our own team of a couple hundred people that live in Las Vegas and travel the world and buy these fantastic pieces and collect art and bus and statues and art. This set uh, was actually custom designed by us. We spent probably two weeks going back and forth with the nose with a company that does fragrances for spaces. The fragrance that's in the main lobby is called Asian Rain. It's the same scent that we have throughout all of our resorts, but we did something special up here in the spa, a bit more relaxing. So we have many different casino locations. This is actually our high limit slot area. So slot machines, there's 53 different slot machines here, and you can bet anywhere from $5 to $500 a spin. Not for everybody's taste, but for those that like to put a little risk and a little excitement into their life, this is uh, definitely a place to come visit. You're laughing. It might be a little too much excitement for you. There is an upside to this equation, if you're lucky. So this is now high limit table games or high stakes. So people betting a little more per hand here, having a bit more fun. Now we'll get down on the main floor. I wanted to show you one of our private gaming salons first though, for that really, really exclusive player. Right Mm. this way. So we have six different private gaming salons, uh, many of them divisible by two, so we can actually do nine different private games. These are for customers that like to play a bit bigger but don't want an audience. Uh, So we've got multiple tables. We can bring in breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And let's go out to the balcony here and take a peek. You're looking down on 50% or half of the gaming floor here. The other half's on the other side. So we have over 3,100 slot machines for people to come and have fun with. There's 210,000 square feet on the main casino floor. Then we also have the mezzanine, uh, and then we have private gaming as well. 44,000 square feet. From childhood, and that's an acre, so that's roughly what? We can fit, I believe it was seven large jumbo jets on the floor of the casino. So this is the buffet. The buffet is an international collection of food, of live action stations, whether it's tomahawk steaks carved right there, prime rib, rack rack of lamb, uh, whole turkeys, all the crab legs and shrimp you can eat, sushi, cheese, Pizza, pasta, it's just, it's never ending. And then the dessert, save room for dessert. We've got a, a, a roulette wheel of gelato that spins around right there in the center. And people stay in here for as long as I think we'll let them. They just keep eating and eating and eating. Frank on the TV. Frank in the air. All Frank all the time. We threw a little Dean in there to keep him company, but pretty much it's, it's Frank. 
So this is the story of Old Blue Eyes, and this is the menu. Many are Frank's favorites. Carpaccio di Bui. Will you remember the famous men who had to fall and then rise again? So take a deep breath. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. And start all over again. Coming up, the novelist Joshua Cohen fingering the scars of a boyhood on the boardwalk in the sometime playland in casino town of Atlantic City. This is Open Source. It was the little blue-collar city next to Boston, Everett, Massachusetts, that actually voted in the Encore Casino after a lot of cities and towns said no to licensed gambling. We're a five Dunkin' Donuts city now with a five-star hotel in it, as an Everett School Committee man put it to me, yes or no on the casino was a growth issue. But sampling opinion along Broadway this week, you can hear two sides of that growth story, starting here with the city councilor, Rosa DeFlorio. When growth comes in, money comes in. Right. When money comes in, improvements come in. As the mayor said, we were the back door of Boston, now we're the front door. The rumors right now that, that, that the casino is going to own the whole area. Eventually, if it says, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to have the housing market, I can't afford no $2,700 a month for rent. The rent's went way up now. Right now, I pay $1,000 in my apartment. I got a two-bedroom apartment. It's ratty. But it's $1,000, I'll keep my mouth shut. If I move out of there right now, he'll rent it for $2,600. But before the casino, I will even spit at him if he asks me for more than 1000 Casino is not a good idea for poor people. You know, most of the... Residents, they get excited because they casino, but they go and spend the money that they don't have. It's good, I think, because it employs people, but it's bad because it's going to drain the city. How so? How so? Because a lot of people don't know what they're doing. They're gonna win it. Give it about five years, there will be a lot of those foreclosures. People will be gambling their houses away. What goes up comes down. Look at Atlantic City. What do you know about Atlantic City? I've been there a couple of times with casinos and all that. That's dying. What did happen to Atlantic City, New Jersey? First on the East Coast into casinos in the 70s, famous for Miss America pageants and Mike Tyson fight nights in the 80s, and then for Donald Trump's serial bankruptcies in casino land into the new century. The unrivaled literary authority on whatever happened to Atlantic City is the young novelist who watched it all growing up. Joshua Cohen is esteemed particularly for his Book of Numbers, also for an impassioned memoir of his hometown written for N Plus One three years ago, when Donald Trump was rising in politics out of his Atlantic City ashes. For Joshua Cohen, it was one twined saga of the darker fantasies in American minds. His long essay called The Last Last Summer appears again in his new collection, Attention, Dispatches from a Land of Distraction. We found Joshua Cohen this week back in Atlantic City, the industry town where his lawyer father made his living suing the casinos. There's no end of lessons for Boston, Joshua Cohen says, in what happened to Atlantic City. People in Boston don't need to be told this, but Boston is a real city, 
right? Boston is a major American city. You think so? It is a major American city compared to every other place that has had casino gambling in the United States, meaning that the first gaming that was legalized in the United States was really legalized by East Coast guys going out to Nevada and founding Las Vegas mm-hmm. in, I believe, 1931. And it was really a response to the Depression. Let's find another way to make some money, really by just, you know, moving money around, by redistributing it, by building, you know, a city in the desert. And these East Coast crime syndicate guys who really perfected the way to run a house, meaning a casino floor, were very much the tutors of the people who brought it to the East Coast, uh, people who brought it to Atlantic City in the very late 70s. And what you really see then are the two meccas of casino gambling in America are essentially cities that one was built from scratch in the desert, mm-hmm. and the other one was cannibalizing a Victorian-era bathing resort, a really health resort. It was founded in the 1850s and was this beautiful Victorian beach resort that really was the first vacation spot for the emergent, quote-unquote, middle class, the idea that people would go on vacation. I mean, vacation was a new thing. The weekend was an amazing thing. You know, the weekend replaced the Sabbath. And the idea that, you know, you would be able to afford to go away to the beach, which was just a train ride away, in the same way that truly wealthy people could go, for example, to the Cape. Right. It was the boardwalk city, and people came back with saltwater taffy. I remember that. They came back with saltwater taffy, but they also came back having seen displays of Thomas Edison's new inventions. They had come back seeing flush toilets, for example, for the first time. Mm. But the long answer to the question is, you know, what does it mean when these places, which were supposed to be dreamlands, these like specific vacation destinations, when their main industry, which is gaming, which is casino gambling, is suddenly exported into mainland United States. You know, we're not offshoring now, we're inshoring. We're bringing something from an island and something from the desert, and we're suddenly giving it to the rest of the country. And so instead of having a pretty locked down dreamland, we're now imbricating this casino ideology into our communities. And we're doing it now in the center of a major American city. In New York City, you go to the Meadowlands, but it doesn't have table games. It's just a slot emporium. Mm. Um, Philadelphia, you know, you go out to the main line and there are casinos like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, for example. Uh, New York City would also go up to Foxwoods and you have uh, the native casinos. But uh, what does it mean to place this in the middle of a city? And it means that this thing, which was accepted in our dreams, is now accepted in our waking lives. And that this something that was kind of sinful and shameful now has a place on our marquee waterfront in the middle of America's, you know, most historic city. And I think that says a lot about people's attitudes toward gaming. I think it also says a lot about the desperation of an America that would rather gamble than make or that has been given the chance only to gamble and Mm. not to make. And I think it also says a lot about a particular American appetite, a particular American psyche, a desire to risk as opposed to build. Joshua, they don't label it gaming, of course, anymore. It's been through its entertainment period. Now it's a resort they're selling. What does that tell you? Well, I think it was always a question of balancing pain and pleasure. It was the idea of will our restaurants, will our entertainment, will our spas attract people and make people happy enough to lose X amount of money on our casino floor? These resort aspects are the sugar that makes the medicine hmm. down. I'm still shaking off all the things that maybe say, wow, Las Vegas in Boston, the chandeliers, the merry-go-round... <laughs> With horses made of flowers, sort of Jeff Koons' kitsch. 
the 507 thread count in the hotel sheets, things like that. The colors, orange and red and yellow colors. I swear they're sending me a message of some sort. One thing that I find very interesting about the win in, in Boston is that Boston is a city with a, you know, functional downtown, certainly a functional historic core. And at least in Atlantic City, I think to a degree in Vegas as well, the Vegas was really kind of built from scratch. But in Atlantic City, you know, we didn't have streets to really walk down. In fact, we try not to walk down our streets. We have a boardwalk, which is not really a street, which is sort of the only lit and policed thoroughfare. And it borders the darkness of the nighttime beach and the ocean. Mm. But these casino hallways, hallways is a small word for them, these caverns, these were my downtown growing up. You know, walking through the Roman Forum of Caesars was my version of walking down a, a street in sort of downtown, you know, Main Street, USA. These indoor spaces, especially these thematized indoor spaces, which are inevitably always thematized after deceased empires or oligarchies, hmm. they are intended or they were designed as replacements for cities where we can't actually walk outside. We can't walk into stores. Instead of having a functional downtown with storefronts, we have to build a fake ye old downtown of storefronts, like at the Bally's Wild West Casino, which is a few blocks from where I'm speaking now, and transact our small town commerce in a casino, in a climate shell. Mm. And I think that in many ways it speaks to our failure to live within our environments and live with our natures. What about those thematized spaces, Joshua? You never see sunlight, of course. You hear band playing all the time. There's a kind of controlled hilarity about the whole thing. Where are we supposed to be? What's the suggestion of where we've landed? Well, I mean, I think everything is is really devoted to the idea of increasing your TOD, which, you know, is German for death, but is casino acronym for time on device, meaning how can we make sure that you spend as much time as possible at the gaming tables? And specifically, how do we ensure that, we, that you spend as much time as possible at the gaming tables that have the greatest house edge, meaning the house's best chance of making money off of you, which is why, you know, slots predominate. At least in the state of New Jersey, I believe it could go up to 15% is the house edge on slots, meaning they have a 15% greater chance of winning than you do. What does that require? It means that you can't leave the place. It means you should always feel that you're in the twilight of, not a twilight in the sense of fading out, but a twilight in the sense of like a vast and hedonistic night is ahead of you. There's carnal atmospherics. There's all sorts of solicitations to keep you circling the casino floor and eventually setting foot there. Corporate incentive structures are involved in terms of like uh, rewards plans, deals cut with transportation agencies, deals cut with busing companies, deals cut with group travelers. They're all there to ensure that the casino hits their profits. And that really means keeping people on devices. I mean, when I was mm -hmm. a kid, that was still the quaint era of coins when a slot machine was operated by a quarter or even a nickel, you know, you had your nickel slots. And, and I remember when casinos went to be operated by cards and suddenly people are walking around with credit cards and there's no actual physical weight to the money that they're playing. And so the entire idea was to keep people swiping and swiping and swiping and swiping and ensure that they had no way of not only knowing how long they were at a table, but not knowing how much they had lost and there was mm. always a sense of shame of having to kind of leave the table and check your card balance or see where you were. 
For me, the thing to always look at is where the coin cashiers are, meaning the places that you would cash out at a casino where you would convert chips or you would cash out the card balance into cash. It used to be run by people, but now it's you know mostly machines. And it's harder to find those things than ever, right? The moment of exchange where the valuta of the casino money you know, is changed for the money of the outside world. This point, the point of fungibility in a casino is always hard to find. It's usually near the handicapped bathrooms. What does that mean? It means they don't want you converting it into real money. They want to keep it in house money. They want to keep it in play money because you're going to play with play money. Joshua, our guide pointed out there are several sort of aromatic zones, different perfumes designed by the wind people for different sort Mm -hmm. of stimuli. I guess everybody's heard that They pump oxygen into casinos. Casinos will spend a lot of money and they will experiment in ways both scientific and pseudoscientific to ensure that you stay within the premises. It's not a question of, oh, I don't like what's going on here, I'm going to leave. It's if you don't like what's going on here, you might want to check out what's next door. The idea of appealing to multiple demographics uh, is the idea that at least one party within, let's say, a family or a group that's going is going to be a party that's going to at least play enough money uh, to make up for the rest of people who can only be profited from by, you know, paying at overpriced restaurants or, or going to the spas or going to the shows. It's always sexy to talk about these tricks that they're using, you know, in the same way that it's funny to talk about, you know, the CIA training agents to mind read goats or something like these large organizations with a lot of money will waste some of it in trying to figure out more and more esoteric ways to further their ends i think the farther that we valorize this is sort of interesting or sexy the, the farther we get from the point which is that these are calculations made by private companies that are often deeply supported by state entities that are entirely directed at parting people from their money and mostly middle class and working class people. People go there for the risk at one level. They also feel, and we did feel, it's the safest place in the world, highly surveilled and all sorts of strong-arm characters ready to keep the peace. I think a lot of the casinos, at least in Atlantic City, were deeply involved with ensuring that the surrounding streets became unsafe so that the casinos seemed like the only safe place in town. Interesting. I mean, I don't know that I consider it safe to be inside a government-subsidized and incentivized institution that is essentially a replacement for a social welfare net or social safety net, a place that the state had to get a few concessions out of and a few commitments to support the lives of the very people whose money they are directly chartered to take. That doesn't feel very safe to me. And just because there are men with guns there who are going to protect me, you know, who are they going to protect me from? They're certainly not going to protect me from the most dangerous people in the establishment who are the owners and the politicians who cooperate with them. Sum it up in a sense, Joshua. What is this phantom place that they've invited us into? A lot of Vegas with a sort of Sinatra Mm -hmm. soundtrack, um, but it's also Mm -hmm. Asian or someplace we're creating in our own heads. It's the most middle-class fantasy ever. It's the idea of, you know, you might never have enough money to be able to visit Venice and Egypt and Rome and Persia, and China. But here, you can see it all under one roof, or you Mm. can see elements of it. You can visit the restaurant of one and, you know, a show of the other. And I think that in a lot of ways, it appeals to 
this sense of desiring to risk everything in order to achieve a better way of life, right? It's all middle-class striving. It's the idea that I am going to not hold my government to account for providing, let's say, adequate social welfare. Instead, I'm going to go to a casino and bet everything on the small chance and the actually close to impossible chance that I will win enough to be one of the elect. In that sense, it speaks to this deep, almost Calvinist, puritanical idea (laughs) underlying a lot of American exceptionalist thought that says life is a gamble and that being born is a gamble to be saved. I think that there's a lot of salvationist rhetoric uh, involved in the idea of being lucky tonight, which was, you know, of course, a slogan of Atlantic City for years. This idea of being able not to work your way out or work your way up from your situation, but to win your way up from your situation, right? But to immediately, instantaneously, stratospherically improve your lot in life through being lucky. The idea of wanting to be discovered as someone who is lucky speaks to something deep in our American DNA, this need to be exceptional, this need to be luckier than our fellows. And so much of the casino ideology is predicated on this. Joshua, you're a child of Atlantic City, and you worked Mm -hmm. your way up as a coin cashier in the casinos. I want to know what the coin cashier knows, especially about the gamblers. Right. A coin cashier knows a lot of things. coin cashier knows that gambling is an addiction. coin cashier knows that money is dirty, and you have to wear your gloves to handle it because at the end of the day, your gloves are filthy. They know that the gamblers have a demonic look to them in a way. Hmm. In fact, I would say that the people that I've seen bottom out the most were people who knew that they were bottoming out. And what attracted them the most was the idea that they were wagering their entire lives. It seemed actually to be not just a suicidal act in the way that we speak about characterizing a certain act as suicidal, but actually it seemed like a psychological replacement for suicide. And there seemed to be a relief after certain losses because it it was the relief of almost self-purification or self-pristination. You know, they could begin again from nothing as if they were reborn. That was also a very scary thing to watch. And frankly, it was some of the exact same characteristics I noticed in people who, uh, at least from Atlanta County, New Jersey, who were talking about voting for Donald Trump. They knew it was something that they shouldn't do, and yet they felt that they had to do it because they wanted to be destroyed, secretly wanted to be destroyed. They were collaborating in their own destruction. A lot of other writers have hit that note, that the deepest drive is not to win money, but is to lose be taken out of the game somehow. I think it speaks to a country of extremes, right? There are winners and there's losers, and I'm not going to complete the Bruce Springsteen lyric for you. I'm really speaking to this idea of a disappearing middle in American life or a disappearing sustainable middle. There are winners and there are losers, and, you know, don't get caught on the wrong side of that line, as the boss says. I think that this idea that there can be no middle and that everything must be risked to achieve one extreme or the other speaks to a impossibility of living a middle life and an intolerability to the American psyche of living a life of the middle. And that seems to me to be disastrous on the civic level. This boom or bust idea is not something that is, you know, a question of Reaganomics, did not begin in the late 70s or early 80s. It's something that is at the heart of really, you know, American Christian theology and has been with us from the beginning. 
Coming up, more Joshua Cohen, not least about what the great Dostoevsky, psychologist and gambling addict, told us for all time in his novella, The Gambler. This is Open Source. The novelist Joshua Cohen makes a judgment on his own formation in Atlantic City that casino culture stunted his growth, that a certain lifelessness is built into the gambling industry. He's telling us that there's something about casinos that thrives amid wasted nature. The Encore Boston Harbor Casino is built on the toxic ruin of a Monsanto chemical plant, expensively cleaned up now. Josh Cohen's Atlantic City was built as a resort on the South Jersey shore, hard by the sandy pine barrens that cannot be cultivated and stand for something forbidding in that ancient landscape. He's hammering the point that Atlantic City and South Jersey are not at all the North Jersey of Bruce Springsteen's town, Asbury Park. He was North Jersey, man. He was, you know, Asbury Park is the North. We're below the Mason-Dixon line here. You know, it's the 609, I would say anything from New Gretna South. The Pine Barrens, Batstow, Batstow South. Once you get in the Jersey Devil territory, once you get in the, in the pines and you get the salt sugar sand and you get the twisted pines and that soil that doesn't make anything grow. Because remember, this is soil that doesn't grow anything but pines. And the soil is only good for polishing baseballs and polishing cannonballs, which were the two big industries of the Pine Barrens. Joshua, go back to, I want to know what the coin cashier sees in the eyes of the people on that floor, day after day, night after night. Uh, I think there's desperation. It's true end of the tether moments. Mm. It's deadening. What you end up seeing are people who have found no other route to their salvation. I mean, I look, I also think you see a lot of bachelorette parties and bachelor parties and people having a good time. And, you know, I'm the last person to begrudge someone that. But... The real population, let's say the lifers, those are people whose lives are destroyed. There's really nothing to prevent them from being on those floors. Just because you put in small print on every casino advertisement, do you have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. That's not an adequate way to deal with this true addiction. I'm also thinking of the great Dostoevsky, who was a gambler and an addict, and he wrote a magnificent Mm -hmm. novella called The Gambler, which I'm sure you've read. He said... The world of gamblers is a sort of hell. And the big, deep, dark secret is that everybody there, smiling or not, is desperate. And a lot of them are Mm -hmm. connected. They have relationships of debt, obligation, courtship, bragging, showing Mm -hmm. off. But it's all laid over a desperation, a delusional greed that they will solve their problem here tonight, maybe even on the next roll of the dice. Sure. I mean, that Dostoevsky novella, which can be read on many levels as, you know, political parable and also as a sort of excursus on money and the erotic or money and sex, mm-hmm. is profoundly interesting, profoundly relevant. You know, Dostoevsky pulls it off in a first-person narrator. Alexei. Right, who, Alexei Ivanovich, who you're supposed to, in a sense, believe, even though knowing he, that he's an addict— And I think that it's wonderful to actually talk about the addiction of Dostoevsky to storytelling in the same way that some people feel that they can buy their way out of problems. And certainly in our culture, we've made ways for people to do that. 
Harvey Weinstein is an example. Certainly Trump has been an example. Dostoevsky fabulated his way out of these situations. And I think that, <laughs> that, that was his true salvation. Oddly enough, he didn't cure his gambling addiction by writing that story. He kicked the habit three or four years later, which is sort of interesting. Right. I didn't say that he solved the problem, but at least he spun it into, right. into someone else's problem. I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the debt situation of that book is fascinating. I mean, I thought a, a lot about that when I was doing some of the reporting during this last presidential campaign, you know, where you have Trump's casinos here going bankrupt, or the Taj Mahal going bankrupt. And what he essentially does is he takes his business debt and his personal debt, conflates the two, dumps it into a publicly traded company. So now shareholders are responsible for it and then milks the casinos for profits, for personal profits, which he reinvests in real estate in New York. And this idea of making your debts someone else's problem in order yes. to extract, you know, anything you can that comes in like free and clear. It seems to me to be actually the fundamental process of a novelist life. If I do have any of that gambler in me, it's the idea of realizing that my relationships, especially my relationships with people in this town, incur certain debts, but that to write about them, I kind of have to put those debts off on others and extract whatever value when I go sell my thoughts to publishers in New York or I speak to a radio station in Boston. Casino capitalism is one thing, Joshua, but now we're talking about capitalists who do casinos. Donald mm -hmm. Trump, most famously, but Steve Wynn in mm -hmm. Boston here and Vegas, Sheldon Adelson all over the world, and their friends like Chris Christie. Who are mm -hmm. these people? These are people who have realized that it, it is easier to profit off of the working class by providing them with a modicum of entertainment and games in which they can lose their money. That's one answer. That's, you know, maybe a pretentious answer. The other answer is there's just guys in the rackets. They're just guys who found a legal way to do something that's always been illegal, you know, which is kind of the history of this country. I mean, let's be honest here. All of these games were played in Atlantic City before Vegas opened. You know, Atlantic City was the gambling capital of the United States, and it had numbers parlors. Go look at the Kefauer Commission. These are guys who were running numbers and were bootlegging, right? And I don't want to glamorize, romanticize, organized crime, but when this thing was illegal, it was contained. And it was the gradual attempt to make legal that which had always been successfully illegal that has led to this casino capitalism. Something's working for the casino culture when Donald Trump, casino bankrupt, and Sheldon Adelson, casino tycoon, are very much in touch and hugely decisively important in world politics. Mm -hmm. What should those things tell us? Look, I think they're very different people, and I think that's very hard to kind of explain that. I mean, Sheldon Adelson is a bad person, but a good businessman. Donald Trump is a brander. He was never a casino owner. I know people who owned casinos ever took him seriously as a casino owner. He was a, a rich kid dabbling and losing his shirt. I think that the branding culture is the culture that we need to look at. He knew that he didn't need to build a casino in order to get what he wanted. He just needed to take casino aesthetics to television, the most mass market medium. And so he got himself an NBC show and took that casino aesthetic to the world. You know, you could be the boss. What is the apprentice besides like a bad mafia capo or a henchman? And all this is, is this like kind of a devolved world in which people actually had none of the better parts of the mafia, which are blood ties and loyalty, and all of the worst parts, which were just like the machismo and the chest thumping and the disregard 
for others <laughs> in, like in the community in which they live and, and a lack of honor toward outsiders. And I think that he understood that he just needed to take this casino aesthetic. He just needed the thinnest veneer. He needed those scents like you were talking about, like the olfactory experience. He needed the entire aestheticization of the casino experience and he needed to put it on primetime network television because he knew that that was enough. And so, you know, to talk about him as a casino owner, I think is, is not true. He's up there with the, with the great branders. He's up there with the Barnums of this world. He's up there with the hype men. Who is the target clientele for casinos like Encore Boston? So I would say all of Boston and everyone who passes through Boston. It's a question of turning our cities into these luxury properties. I mean, certainly we've seen this with New York. And I do believe that New York City will have a major casino enterprise in its center or closer to its center than the aqueduct in the next decade. These are revenue generators. And as long as politicians support them and as long as they feed the dreams and delusions of the people who play there, you know, we're going to see them become increasingly accepted into to the center of American life in the same way that we increasingly see many things from marijuana to prostitution that was formerly mm. controlled by organized crime. And we're going to see them increasingly being brought out into the light of day. And the question is whether we're going to say that this is an improvement on their previous existence or whether we're going to say that, in fact, this represents true venality because it maybe, you know, deprives us of some imaginative or romantic capacities, but at the same time provides a substitute for real economic change. Hmm. What's the progression? Massachusetts got into the casino business because people worried about Massachusetts people going to Foxwoods and Connecticut. Right. First Indian casinos and then anybody casinos, Steve Wynn casinos. Right. And no longer at a distance next door. How far can it go? I mean, it could go to the uh, McCarran Airport level where there's, you know, slot machines in the airport. You could put slot machines in Logan. I mean, honestly, it's already gone about as far as it can go. And that's with gambling on the Internet. We all can lose all of our money in our pockets right now. These technologies are with us. And if we actually want to look harder for ways to lose our money, we can. At the time of the, that last election, I wanted to bet on who would win, Trump or Clinton, because the piece I wrote actually called the election for Trump. And no place would take my action that was based in the United States. I had to go place a bet with Ladbrokes, I believe I bet with, which is the UK, and then someplace in the Caribbean, because betting on political elections in the United States is a variation on sports betting, which is illegal in all but four states. You bet on Trump? I put down very little money, and I forget what the odds are. I won about 1200 bucks. That's a good night at the casino? It, it was, but it was done, you know, through the smartphone in my pocket. Speak of the goodies that were promised here, Joshua. The cleaning up of a toxic chemical dump, mm-hmm. $77 million, they say, city and state taxes into the future, but also raising service wages, especially restaurants for waiters, mm-hmm. bartenders, hotel maids, drivers. They're all making at least 23 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. which is good news. And they get very good people, too. Yeah, I hope that is the case. I mean, it certainly was the case for Vegas, but again, that was created from scratch. That certainly was not the case in Atlantic City. So what happened to Atlantic City was that Atlantic City was not in Philadelphia. Atlantic City was not in New York. There isn't even direct train service between New York and Atlantic City. You have to go west to go east. You have to go to Trenton and 30th Street Station in Philly before heading back down south. Yeah. 
What we didn't see, Joshua, at Encore was the surveillance floor, which is as big as the gambling floor. What are we missing? Um, a bunch of dudes who don't know really how to work computers looking at big computer monitors. I mean, you're looking at a window, a complete window into the casino floor with technologies that detect magnets, the technologies that detect cameras, technologies that detect any electronic equipment, any Wi-Fi signals on the floor. I mean, you know, what you're looking at is a sort of high-tech surveillance laboratory staffed by, again, by people who are less, let's say, computer savvy and experts in counting cards or in spotting cheaters and spotting card counters and spotting people who are trying to use loaded dice. You know, people who have been caught by the casino in the past are frequently hired to work the other side of the aisle. Do they know I'm counting cards if I, if I was? Uh, I mean, depends how good you are at it. And also, you know, that's not technically illegal. It's just the casino won't put up with it, and they have the right to refuse service. Is there a business model for casinos and for cities that admit them? Sure. If there wasn't a business model, then they wouldn't be making them. But the business model seems to be get promises from the state, to make promises to the state, to receive major tax abatements, to build unsustainable monstrosities that redistribute money from the bottom up. That's a pretty good scam, and it's been working for a while. You say scam. I mean, I'm sorry, I meant business model. <laughs> what is it like for a kid to grow up in Atlantic City, the playland? You know, no bookstores, horrible libraries, no place to be if you're under 18. Schools? Schools are deeply racially tense. That's why I was largely sent to the Jewish school, the yeshiva here on the island. It's to live in a segregated city. It's to not have, a, for most of my childhood, have a movie theater. Safety? Social relations? You stayed on the boardwalk. The big news was uh, when the strip clubs went from accepting you know, singles to scrip. That was a big scandal. It used to be that you would go in with a $20 bill and you'd get 20 singles and you put a single in at a time. And now it was you would give $20 and they would give you 20 plastic bills that each said $1 on it. And so you wonder, you know, why am I shoving plastic that says $1 into somebody's G-string? And the answer was, well, because they're not really worth the dollar. They're worth 80 cents, and the house keeps 20 cents of every dollar. They realize mm -hmm. by not letting you put real money into a stripper's G-string, but letting you put house money into a stripper's G-string, they could keep a percentage of that working woman's profits. Uh, so that was a big deal in high school. Scrip. For a long time, Atlantic City stands and will stand for Donald Trump, bankruptcy, Chris Christie, I suppose the edges of the mob. Also our half dozen mayors who went to jail or were indicted. Yeah, air of defeat, of vulgar defeat. And yet right. Trump wrote it to the presidency too. It's a lot to contain in the associations of Atlantic City. Yeah, again, I think, you know, Atlantic City is, is one city of four cities on an island called Absecon Island. You have Longport, Margate, Ventnor, and Atlantic City. Its year-round population is between twenty-five and 30,000 people. It's four streets wide on a barrier island that is connected by, you know, a series of bridges that flood easily to the mainland. It doesn't have an airport on the island. 
It doesn't actually even have a functional port anywhere on the island. It was a summer snow globe of a town. It was fantasy. It was pastel postcards, tinsel. It was grabbing the brass ring from the uh, merry-go-round pony. You know, the kind of putt-putt fried clam strip, step right up, test your strength nonsense of the place. It was always supposed to be fantasy. It was always supposed to have the consistency of cotton candy. It was the American dream, and people forgot that the consistency of dream is cloud. And uh, unfortunately here, it's become like abandoned concrete. Mm. And I can say that in my experience growing up in a town that relied entirely or almost entirely on the casino industry was a, um, was a scandal and was impoverished in every way, soul impoverished, intellectually impoverished. The experience of growing up in a casino town, that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of, of rootedness, of living in a, a transient space where kind of people are always passing through, and that the concomitant sense of almost chauvinism that comes along with being one of the few locals from a place, and the idea of dividing a world into the insider and the outsider, and to dividing people into the people who are on the inside of the scam and the people who are on the outside of the scam, the, you know, the rubes, the, the people who are the victims. You know, that to me shaped a lot of my thinking, a lot of my life, unfortunately. And it's still, mm. uh, it's still questions I ask myself now in my adulthood when I really th hope to have purged a lot of that, which is, you know, when I see kind of anything, it's like who's in on it and who's not, who's being taken advantage of and who's taking advantage. And I think that rapaciousness and that sense that there's always a winner or a loser and there's always sort of someone in the know and someone not, these stark extremes, you know, is an ideological hangover of a youth in casino culture, one that has always kind of kept me safe but not one that has kept me kind, generous, or open. Joshua Cohen, you've given us a lot of Atlantic City, a lot of cautions, a lot of yourself. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You can read Josh Cohen's N Plus One essay about Atlantic City, The Last Last Summer, in his new collection called Attention, Dispatches from a Land of Distraction. Open source patrons, you can hear more from Josh Cohen in Atlantic City. He took a walk along the boardwalk with our producer, Adam Coleman. Listen carefully and you'll hear him talk about the strange, inspiring beauty of his hometown. Go to patreon.com slash radio open source. And while you're up, think of boosting your pledge for the world's first podcast and the hardest working team in radio. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our pit boss. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source. <laughs>